Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. We're in the last of the letters to the churches in Revelation, and after this, next week, we go on to chapter 4, and we're into the rest of the book. But uh, at the beginning of Revelation, we have these seven letters to the churches, and we're in the seventh and final one this weekend, the letter to the church at Laodicea. And I'm just going to read the letter to you in chapter 3 here, verses 14 to 22, and then we'll pray and we'll dig into it. And Jesus says this, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Uh, And salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Bow your heads with me, and let's pray to the author of these letters, Lord Jesus. Today we are here, and we come here busy. Some of us come here feeling down. Some of us come here feeling exhausted and worn out. Other of us come here on a high. We come here at all kinds of different places, but Jesus We all need another refreshing drink at the fountain of your spirit. Would you touch us this morning with your spirit? May we leave here with more hope and more closeness to you and more truth in our minds. In your precious name we pray. All God's people said, amen. 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 Well, speaking of amen, Jesus introduces himself here, right at the beginning of this letter, as the amen, right? Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen. And of course, as with so much else, just going to get this out of the way because I'm going to kick it at some point. But as with so much else uh, in almost everything else really in the book of Revelation, uh, if we want to learn more about these titles and what he's saying, we go back to the Old Testament because the, the entire book of Revelation is saturated in the Old Testament and rooted in the Old Testament. And there's no difference here. What does this mean? The words of the amen, this word, this, you know, this word that we use all the time as Christians. You know, after every meal, we pray with the kids, and we, at the end, we say, in Jesus' name, amen. When we pray for them before bed, in Jesus' name, amen. If you like the message at some point, some of you will say, amen. And by the way, I like that. It encourages me. Um, but anyway, uh, amen is this word we use so much. Jesus introduces himself as the amen. What does it mean? And uh, if we go back to Isaiah 65, 16, we'll find something interesting, and we'll learn some things here. Isaiah 65, 16 uh, Isaiah is prophesying as a prophecy of the future, what's going to happen after Jesus returns in the Millennium Kingdom. And uh, if, you're, if you don't know what the Millennium Kingdom is, don't worry, we'll get to that in this series as we move through Revelation. But anyway, it's a prophecy for the future and what we, the servants of God, are going to do in the future after Jesus returns. And it says this, so that he who blesses himself in the land, this is after Jesus returns, these are people who have followed God, in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. Now it's interesting in our English translations yeah, it says that we're going to bless ourselves in the name of the God of truth. But the actual word in Hebrew is not truth. 
It's the Hebrew word amen. Literally, amen, it's where we get our word amen from. It's just taken straight to the Hebrew. Amen is Hebrew. And literally what it says is we're going to bless ourselves in the land by the God of amen. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of amen. By the way, I want to stop there just for a moment. We're going to go on a little rabbit trail in in just a few minutes uh, on that swearing an oath because no doubt some of you have some memory in this area. There are lots of Christians through history and many Mennonites who consider it a sin to swear an oath, to, for example, in court, uh, put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth. There are many people who think it's bad to swear an oath. This verse seems to suggest we're going to be swearing oaths in the future in God's name, which for some of us will feel like that sounds wrong, okay? So I'm going to come back to that. That's a bit of a rabbit trail. It doesn't really have much to do with this message other than there are some things we can learn there about how we understand the Bible uh, that are important. I'm going to come back to that. But first, I want to deal with this God of, God of amen. So we're going to swear oaths in the name of God of amen. So what on earth does this mean? And again, obviously here in Revelation, Jesus is drawing on that. God is the God of the amen in, in the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus, again, as we see throughout the, the, this, the book of Revelation, these letters, introduces himself by God's titles uh, from the Old Testament. So what does it mean when God says he is the God of amen? And of course, as our English translations translate, certainly part of it means truth. That's, that's amen. There we go. Okay. Uh, certain, certainly part of it is truth, but you know, there's something interesting in translation. When you translate from one language to another, usually it is true that a word in this language is not exactly similar or exactly equal. I should say similar. Yes. But you know, usually in a language, a word in this language, translating a word in this language, there's no word that's exactly equal. And that is certainly true of the Hebrew word, amen. Certainly, part of the connota- a big part of the connotation it is certainly true. It means truth. So God is the God of truth, which means everything he says is true, absolutely true. He would never lie. He would never mislead. He would never deceive. He is the God of truth. Certainly, the God of the amen means that. But it means more than truth. The Hebrew word, amen, is not covered by the word truth. Truth just grabs one aspect of it. And another aspect of this word is not just truth, but it's also the idea of certainty. Okay? Certainty. And you say, well, how are those two things different? Let me explain it this way. For example, you can tell the truth, or you can can, uh, say something that is true, or intend to say something that is true, and yet have it not be certain. So for example, let's say you're in the delivery business or something. You have a little delivery business. Someone calls you in the morning. It's an emergency. And uh, you promise them, absolutely, I'm going to deliver that part to you or whatever this afternoon. So you promise them and you fully intend to do it. You plan to do it. You have the means to do it. You will do it. You're a person of integrity. You always follow through on your word. When you say you're going to deliver it, you deliver it. You're going to deliver it. Now let's say on your way making the delivery, you have an accident. Okay? And you hurt yourself and your van is totaled and maybe you even lose the part or whatever it is. And now you get sent to the hospital. And so in the end, you don't, you aren't able to fulfill your promise. You're, on, you're not able to uh, deliver the part like you said you would. Okay? Now, this doesn't have anything to do with you not telling the truth or not. You fully intended to do it. You were going to do it. You had the capability to do it. But forces outside of your power conspired to stop you from fulfilling your promise. Because you're not all powerful, those sorts of things can happen. 
Or say you're in business and you make a commitment and you're big on integrity. By the way, that is so important. By the way, as Christians, carrying the name of Christ, who is the God of amen, we should be absolutely trustworthy in all that we say and do in our dealings. Isn't that not true? I mean, if we're carrying the name of the God of truth and we call ourselves Christians by the name of the God of truth, we should be servants of truth. It should matter to us more to have integrity than to make the extra buck. It's not that it's bad to make a buck, but once you give your word, and once you agree to do something, we should have integrity above all else, even when it hurts. That's an aside. Anyway, the God of the amen, okay? But certainty, let's say you're in business, and you make a deal, or you make a commitment, and you're always very careful to pay your bills and your debts because integrity matters to you, and it should because you're carrying Jesus' name. But let's say now you are in debt to someone and, you've, and you're going to pay the bill and you've made the plan and you can pay the bill and it's all this sort of stuff. Now some kind of massive, you know, collapse of some kind, market collapse, economic collapse comes or whatever, and you lose everything and you're not able to pay them back. Now again, you are a very truthful person. You are a person of integrity. You've always paid your bills, but this one's actually just outside of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. Again, you made a promise and you couldn't fulfill it, but it didn't have to do with your integrity this time. It, again, had to do with forces outside of your control, okay? Now, this is the beauty of God being the God of the amen. He's not just the God of truth, that he just says true things. He's also the God of the amen, which means everything he says is certain, because what could ever cost him something that he couldn't repay it when he owns everything? And what kind of accident could ever happen that he couldn't foresee or that he couldn't overcome because he is all-powerful and sovereign. So he is the God of the amen. When he says something, it's not just true, it is absolutely certain. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder his will or his power or his word. And the New Testament picks up on this fact and puts Jesus into this thing of being the amen. And not just in Revelation 3, which we'll come back to, but 2 Corinthians 1, verse 19 to 20 is just an example. Paul says this, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, they're the ones who are doing the preaching there, to the Corinthians, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Now, I just have to stop here for just a moment. Sometimes there are certain uh, preachers and teachers and writers who dabble in you know, uh, prosperity theology, They'll take that verse there, verse 19. Sometimes they'll add verse 20. Sometimes they'll leave verse 20 out because it complicates things. But they'll take verse 19 and they take it as Jesus is always yes. If you ask him for anything, it's always yes. If you ask him for healing, it's always yes. If you ask him for a better job, it's always yes. If you ask him for more money, it's always yes. They take that verse that way. And that is not at all what this verse is saying. Jesus God would not be a good parent if he always said yes to us. Has any of you ever asked him a request that later you realized was a bad request? Has any of you ever asked him a request that you knew in the moment was a bad request? Okay? Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional. But there is no way that Jesus would always say yes to us. And there's certain requests I pray to my past that I am so glad he didn't answer yes. Now in retrospect. Okay? That passage does not mean he always says yes to your prayers. What it means is, if we go to verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, what are the promises of God? Has God promised to give you things that aren't good for you? No. Has God promised to give you everything you could, your, your selfish desires could ever want? No. But what has he promised us? He has promised us salvation. 
He has promised us an eternal messianic kingdom here on the earth where death will be defeated, where there will be no more sin, where there will be no more sickness. There will be resurrection. He has promised us forgiveness. He has promised us grace. He has promised us all these incredible things. And in Jesus, all of those promises, all of God's promises are yes. Therefore, that is why through him, through Jesus, that we can utter our amen. Now notice in in, our, in your Bible, you'll see that amen is capitalized because it's not just talking about saying amen. It's literally putting that as a title of Jesus. It's referring that to Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus is our amen. Now, how is it that Jesus is the amen on God's promises? Here's how. We haven't experienced all those promises yet. Right? The messianic kingdom is not here on earth yet. We have not been resurrected. It's been a long time. Human, humanity has been waiting a long time for this, for sin and death and disease and sickness and depression and despair and brokenness to all be healed for all time and, not, and to be gone. We're, we've, we're still waiting for that. It's not here yet. But if we want to see, if you want to know, is God serious? Was he telling the truth in those promises? And are those promises certain? We look to Jesus because he's the God of the amen. And amen means truth and it means certainty. So if you want to know if God was serious about those promises, you look to Jesus. He was serious. How, why else would he send his son onto the earth to be born as a baby, to grow up and suffer and die on a cross? You want to know if God was serious, if he was telling the truth when he made those promises? Jesus is the yes and the amen. He's the proof that God was serious. And then when you look to the resurrection, do you wonder, is God powerful enough to pull it off? Is he powerful enough to defeat death? You look at Jesus when he rose from the dead, and Jesus is the amen. He's the seal on those promises, both that God was serious, that God was telling the truth, and that God certainly will carry it out. Jesus is the amen on all of God's promises, and it is also through Jesus that we gain access to the, those promises. There is no other way to receive resurrection and forgiveness and eternal life, but through Jesus, he literally is the amen on all of God's promises. Now, we're going to come back to Revelation 3, because Jesus introduces himself as the amen in Revelation 3. But here's where I, I just want to take that, I want to take a little rabbit trail here on oath-taking, just what I talked about from Isaiah 65, 16. And I think, again, this is an important thing. There's certain things, even if they don't have to do with the overall message, sometimes I like to do them because they help us overall in terms of giving us principles for how we read this. And one of the principles we need to have when we read this is Holy Spirit common sense. And so I, I want to look at a couple of passages. You say, how, how is it that so many Christians throughout history, over the centuries, not just now and certainly in our area, some Mennonites, and this is not a criticism of them. Well-meaning people, they want to obey the word of God. In fact, I'll show you two passages why so many Christians over the centuries have said it's not okay to ever take an oath. And the reason is because Jesus blatantly says never take an oath. So let's go take a look at that. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord which you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. So that seems pretty clear. Do not take an oath at all. So you can see why many Christians have interpreted it this way. Or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So, in other words, Jesus is, if we just take these words at face value, Jesus is saying, even to say, I promise, anything more than yes or no is evil. Now, obviously, the core part of what he's teaching here has to do with integrity. Is it not true that as Christians, if I say yes, it should be yes, and if I say no, it should be no, whether there's a contract or not, whether there's an oath or not, whether there's a promise or not, the fact that I bear Jesus' name means truth is more important to me than success. And truth is more important to me than the bottom line. The bottom line is important. And success is important. But if there is ever a conflict between the bottom line and truth, and you're a Christian, truth should win out. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Okay, without an oath, you don't even need a contract or an oath or a handshake or anything. As a Christian, we have integrity. Okay, and Jesus' brother James carries on with this kind of message. He was obviously there at the Sermon on the Mount. And he preaches uh, the same point in James chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear. Not talking about, for those of you young people, it's not talking about cursing here. It's talking about taking an oath. But it also applies to cursing. Don't do that either. Either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, if all we had in the Bible. Now, this is where we have to learn always to not take a couple of verses and then build a massive doctrine on them. Everything must always be taken holistically with the Word of God. If all we had was those two verses, we would have to say, yep, you know what? Uh, Oath-taking is bad, which means has many implications. Uh, Because, you know, if anybody who, you know, most people who take any kind of political office, including at City Hall or, or in the legislature or in Ottawa, you have to take an oath before you take office. If you're a doctor, you've got to take oath before they'll make you a doctor. An oath to take care of your patients and all sorts of stuff like that. If you go to court and you're a witness, you, they ask you to put your hand on the Bible and swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Um, there are all kinds of places. In fact, a wedding. What are they called? Wedding vows. If taking an oath is absolutely sinful across the board, then we should not do a big ceremony where we take wedding vows because a vow is a promise. It's not just saying yes or no. We should just have two people get together. You love each other. The pastor says, you love each other. Yep, yep. Okay, you're going to stay together for life? Yes. You'll be, uh, you won't be unfaithful? No. Okay, good enough. But we don't believe that. We actually believe and practice, most of us, that there are, there are appropriate solemn occasions when it is okay to take an oath. Okay, and, you, and now you say, but the Bible says never. You're right, it does say never. But our first clue that never isn't never is the fact that there are many contradictions with it in Scripture. That's your first clue that you have to use Holy Spirit common sense when reading a passage. When you read a passage that says never or always or something like that, and then there's a bunch of passages that directly contradict that, then you know, I need Holy Spirit, I need Holy Spirit common sense here. This is not never or all. So, for example, there are many, many examples. I can't even begin to show you all of them. There are many examples in Scripture where God takes oaths. So, well, I'll just show you one. Hebrews 6 talks about, this is the New Testament. Hebrews 6, verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, he didn't just say yes or no to Abraham. He didn't just say, yes, Abraham, I'm going to give you the land, and your descendants are, you know, uh, are, it's going to be the Savior of the world going to come to your descendants. That was far too solemn on occasion just for a yes or no. So it's this. Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. 
Okay, now maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, maybe God's allowed to swear oaths, but people aren't. I want you to first of all notice here, again, this is what we're, we're thinking this through. It's Holy Spirit common sense when you read the Bible. Already we know as we're reading this that this is way different than do not commit adultery or do not lie or do not steal. Isn't it true? Because those are things God himself would never do. Does God ever lie? Does God ever steal? Does God ever commit adultery? Does God ever covet? No. The reason those things are wrong, the reason they are in the Ten Commandments, is because God says, I don't do them, therefore you don't do them. So already we can see that don't take an oath isn't like the Ten Commandments. It's not a moral command because God himself does them. So this isn't something that's, that's wicked, God, obviously, inherently, because God himself swears oaths. Look at verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. That's fine, the writer of Hebrews says. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly, he didn't just want to say yes or no, because there are solemn occasions when it's appropriate to do more than just yes or no. When he wanted to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And by the way, we can look at scads of examples in Paul's letters where Paul takes oaths. Paul took a lot more oaths than most of us. I'll just show you two. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 23, Paul says this, He's trying to explain to the Corinthians why he didn't come to visit them. And he doesn't want them thinking his motives are bad. So he tells them, the only reason I didn't come to see you is because I wanted to spare you from me having to, uh, you know, rebuke you and hurt you. And he wants them to know that he's telling the truth. So he, he writes an oath into the Bible. He says, I call God to witness. I call God to witness against me. You know what that is basically saying? May God strike me dead if I'm telling you a lie. It's an oath. I call God to witness against me. What I'm telling you is the truth. He does this all over in his letters. Galatians 1.20. He's trying to convince the Galatians again that what he's saying is the truth. Uh, um, and so he writes this. In what I'm writing to you before God. Again, he's calling God as my witness. I'm going to bring God into this. I am not lying. If I'm lying, you know, God is witness against me. That's a serious oath. And of course, Deuteronomy 6.13, in the very law of the Lord, God himself commands that his people take oaths in his name. It says this in 6 verse 13, it is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. God said to the Israelites, he said, I do not want you taking oaths in the names of other gods. I am your God, you take your oaths in my name. Okay. So you say, well, what on earth? Matthew 5, Jesus says, Never take an oath, okay? Well, now we've just seen there's a whole body of evidence here in the Bible that there's more to this than just never take an oath. So we go back to it with our Holy Spirit common sense. Even if you have no access to a commentary or to a pastor who can answer your questions, you can already see there that obviously there must be occasions when it's okay to take an oath and occasions when it is not. But if you have access to more, you can look into the context and you can find out that in first century Judaism, the Jews had, taking, had taken oath-taking to, to extremes. They were sprinkling everyday conversation all over the place with all kinds of oaths. In fact, you can find this in the extra-biblical literature. I saw an example this week in the extra-biblical literature of that time, which is just the writings of people that were writing at that time. And there's an example where uh, this one guy invites another guy over for supper, and the other guy says, you know, takes an oath, I forget what it was in, by his head or by the temple or by whatever, I would never come to your house, blah, 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 blah. And then they resolve some issues, and later on he goes to his house for dinner. 
They were just taking oaths all the time as an exclamation point. In fact, it was happening so often that the teachers of the law were like, wow, this is really bad because we don't know anymore because oaths are getting broken all the time now. So they actually had to come in with layers of different oaths. Because、so、finally, you needed oaths that you could actually trust because there w a s oaths you couldn't trust. So they had levels of oaths, and you shouldn't break any oath, but if you break an oath that's you know, by your head or by the temple or by that one, okay, fine. You can break it, it's not a mortal sin. But you can't break an oath that is this, 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 or this. And they had a categories. If you want to read more about that, you can read about it in Matthew 23. Jesus really takes them to task for this layering of oath stuff. So Jesus comes into this now, and he's preaching about integrity, and he says, Forget the oaths. It's just integrity. Yes, yes, no, no. And he says, Never take an oath. You know what that is? You say, Well, why would he say never? It's how many times do I have to say? Hyperbole. This book. And your everyday language are filled with hyperbole. And this, the Bible is too. So Jesus is not, if you could have gone up to him right after that message and you could have said, because he said, never take an oath, and you could have said,、uh, I'm due in court in a couple of days, they're going to ask me to swear on the Bible. Is it okay? And he would have said, Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a totally different situation. It's hyperbole. It's how we speak, it's how we make points. And we need to read the Bible with that in mind, all right? And it will help you in many other areas. There are other issues. Much bigger than that one, where theologians have gone off on all kinds of weird doctrines because they have failed to read hyperbole where there's hyperbole, or they have taken doctrines and based them off of a verse or two when there's many other scriptures that need to be brought in to bear as well. Holy Spirit con-、uh, common sense is a great thing when reading the Bible. It is 100% inerrant and written by God, and it was written through human beings. So it's a human divine book, and I love that. Back to Revelation 3, verse 14, though. Off the, the significant rabbit trail there, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen. Jesus is saying, I am the Amen. And everything he says in this book and in these letters is absolutely true, but is more than true, it is absolutely certain. If he says judgment is coming, it's coming. If he says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. If he says this is the reward, that is the reward. He is the amen. What he says is absolutely, you can be confident and certain in it. And then he goes on to say, now he is going to rebuke the church. He says, I know your works. And again, everything he says is 100% true and it's 100% certain. He knows them. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, there is a misunderstanding of this passage that I just want to clarify. First of all, lukewarm here certainly does mean without passion. It certainly does mean that. And that's what people have taken it to mean for centuries, and it certainly does mean that. Lukewarm certainly does mean a person who believes in Jesus with their mind. But there's no zeal in the heart. They have a, a form of religiosity. They go to church. They do some basic Christian things, but there's no zip. There's no deep love for Jesus or gratitude. And certainly that is what it means to be lukewarm. But I'll tell you something else that is often said about this passage that is not true. I have seen a number of commentaries, I've heard a number of pastors preach this as. Jesus hates lukewarmness so much that he would rather you be cold. And they interpret cold as a bad thing. That cold means like an atheist, someone who has no 
heat for Jesus, an atheist or a pagan. And so literally, I've seen this in commentaries, I've heard preachers preach this, that Jesus would rather you be an outright pagan or atheist than a lukewarm Christian. And I'm just here to tell you today, that is categorically false. It, Jesus would not rather you be an outright unbeliever or a pagan. He is gentle and merciful with his children. We struggle with lukewarmness sometimes, and he calls us to repent. But he would not rather you be an atheist than lukewarm. So cold here is not a bad thing. Cold here is not the opposite of loving Jesus. It's something else. And again, a little bit of Holy Spirit common sense when we read the Bible is important. If we just stop sometimes and think about what we're saying, clearly lukewarmness isn't a good thing. Jesus is calling this church to repent. But clearly as well, being an unbeliever is not better than being lukewarm. To be in, being against you is not better. So what's going on here? Again, if we dig into the context a little bit, we find out some things, about ge- some things that are geographical that totally make this passage come alive. Okay? So there, was, there were three sister cities all within a, a few miles of each other. There was Laodicea, and then six miles away from Laodicea was a, was a city called Hierapolis. There was a river in between them. There's Laodicea, and then across the river and six miles away was this place called Hierapolis. Now, Hierapolis was famous in the province of Asia at the time because they had a number of amazing hot springs, okay? And of course, that was a big deal in those days because in those days, they didn't have electricity, so not just anyone could have a hot tub no matter where you lived. Uh, You didn't have a hot tub unless you had hot springs nearby, and people would literally travel to Hierapolis from all over the province of Asia to sit in their hot springs, and of course, lots of commentaries talk about how you know, people went there for medicinal reasons and healing reasons, but I'm betting that also a whole bunch of people just went there to relax. You don't need to, you don't need to be sick or in need of healing to go and sit in a hot tub. It just feels good to sit in something hot. And so people flocked there because they had very hot water. Now, you might think to yourself, oh, that's pretty cool. Laodicea, six miles away, maybe they got some of that hot water. Yes, well, it's true. The overflow from those hot springs flowed towards Laodicea and, and, and eventually into that river. And in fact, they flowed over uh, a cliff that was right across the river from Laodicea, and they could see the water from Hierapolis coming over this cliff. This cliff was a couple hundred feet high, okay? The only problem is that by the time it got to Laodicea, the water was not hot anymore. It was literally lukewarm, okay? It was lukewarm. Now, I've heard of lots of people sitting in hot tubs. I have, in fact, and I've heard of athletes who sit in ice tubs, Okay? Uh, I don't really believe in that kind of craziness, but they do it, right? It supposedly it helps with healing or running faster, I guess, or whatever. I've heard it, but people love to sit in hot tubs. Some crazies will sit in ice tubs. I have never heard of anyone, let's go out on the back deck and sit in our lukewarm tub. <laughs> lukewarm isn't good for anything. Cold might be good for something. Hot might be good for something. Lukewarm's in the middle. It's good for nothing. And you also couldn't drink the water from Hierapolis because it had all kinds of uh, minerals in it, okay? So that was hot water. Well, there's another city 10 miles upriver. So here you got Laodicea, you got six miles away across the river, you've got Hierapolis with the hot springs. 10 miles upstream, you had another uh, city, Colossae. Uh, they also had a church there. That's who Paul wrote to the book of Colossians. Uh, Colossae was also very well known for their water in, in those times. Travelers raved about Colossae's water. They had a number of fresh water springs in and around the city. And Colossae was known in the province of Asia as having the best, the coldest, cleanest, 
and clearest drinking water anywhere. And people would go out of their way if they were traveling to stop in Colossae so they could drink its water. It was cold and pure and fresh. By the way, is cold, clean, wonderful, life-giving water a bad thing? No. It's not the same as Hierapolis's water, it's, but it's for something else. People would go to Hierapolis not to drink the water, but to sit in the water. People would go to Colossae for the cold water, not to sit in it, but they wanted to drink it. That water was refreshing. One water, one kind of water is hot and healing, and one kind of water is cold and refreshing. And then there's Laodicea right in the middle, and they're lukewarm, and it's not good for either. You don't want to drink it, and you don't want to sit in it. And what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying here is not, I'd rather you be an outright pagan than a lukewarm Christian. No, no. The point, if that was true, then if you're lukewarm here today, just may as well go out of here and become an atheist because Jesus thinks thinks that's better. That's not better. Repent. But his point is, you've got different kinds of churches that are in the Spirit and they do things in different ways. You might have one church, and I've been in churches like this, where there's just Because every church, just like every person is different, every fingerprint is different, and no two people are are the same, and no two people are going to minister in the same way, no two people, their devotions are going to look exactly the same way, no two people are going to serve God in exactly the same way. In the same way, every church is going to have some strengths and some weaknesses. Now, obviously, yeah, there's certain things that that you always want to be strengthening, but every church is going to have a bit of a different flavor. There's going to be some core things that every church does, but every church is going to have a different flavor. I've been in churches where there's literally a spirit of worship in that place. And you go there, and the moment they start you know, doing the worship, you, you, you have moments where you just want to cry. You can just feel a love for Jesus in that place. And they might be a little chaotic on their discipleship, and there may be some other things. The teaching might be kind of not as great. I mean, it's biblical. It has to be biblical. It can't be false teaching. And by the way, there's Jesus does not reprimand Laodicea for false teaching either, which is very interesting to me. They've got decent teaching, but they're just lukewarm. They just, says, I want to spit you out. But you go to these places, and they're just hot for Jesus, and you feel a love for Jesus. And there might be other elements that they're not as great at, but they have that, and it makes you just, oh, it's wonderful. And then you have other churches. You might go to one. It might be even a, a smaller one in some cases or whatever, and you might cry in their worship too, but it's for a totally different reason. Because it's just, it's just bad. And, and the musicianship is not good, and, and people are awkward, and it, part of it's the culture, maybe that area, or part of it's whatever. It's just different. But you know what? In that same church, they might be, maybe it's a smaller church, maybe it's still a big church, but, but uh, it might be a, a totally different kind of people, but they have a deep, deep love for Jesus and his word, and they're evangelizing their friends. And they're reaching out. And in one church, you go there, and it's almost like it heats you up with passion for Jesus. In another church, you go, and it's like they drive you deep. Now, of course, we, we all want to have hot worship. We all want to grow in that. This is an excuse for churches not to want to grow in one or the other. But it's just the fact that they have different flavors. And this church, might, you might go there, and the, the outward stuff might not be as good. But when you come away from being with those people, they want to drive you deeper into the Lord and into discipleship and into being faithful to him. And Jesus says, hot or cold? Those are both good. If you have a passion for Jesus and going closer to him, those are both good. But if you're just lukewarm and nobody's life is changing, you have a a form of Christianity, you have a nice building and you have some nice programs, you have all the churchy things and you even have some decent teaching, it's not false teaching, but nobody has any kind of zeal to go deeper into the Lord. That's lukewarm. Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. 
Would that you were cold. At least if someone goes and they're going to get a refreshing uh, you know, drink of the Holy Spirit and God's word. Or at least if they could go and find some kind of heat and zeal. But at your place, they find only churchiness. They find only services. And then he gets to the core of what it means to be lukewarm. He says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's the key phrase there. For. The word for there means because. He's explaining to us what it means to be lukewarm. Because, this is what you do. You think you're rich, you think you've prospered, and you think you need nothing. By the way, this is the source of all prayerlessness. In an individual's life and in a church life. Because prayer is motivated by a sense of need. Now, I'm not just talking about being in a crisis, although that's true. Isn't it true that whenever you're in a crisis in your life, that's when you pray, it becomes easier to pray? How many of you have found that to be true? Put, put a Christian who's struggling with prayer in a crisis, and suddenly you find them praying all the time. Isn't it true? Because it's a sense of need. Now, the thing is, we don't need to just be in crisis to sense our, our need. You cannot be in a crisis. You can be in an easy place in life and still get up every morning and just be, I need you, Jesus. But if you don't have a sense of your need for Jesus, you won't have a prayer life. And if you show me a church that does not have prayer, corporate and individual, where people are praying and where they're getting together to prayer, it's not just, a church is a corporate body, not just individuals. It's not just individuals going home and having devotions. That's important too. But show me a church where you don't have a corporate gathering where people desire to come together and pray. And I'll show you a church that corporately does not feel its need for Jesus. Because the moment you feel your need for Jesus, the first thing you do is pray. And this Laodicean church did not feel its need for Jesus. Now, you know what's interesting is the spirit of the city of Laodicea had crept into the church. Laodicea was a wealthy city. In fact, out of these seven churches in Revelation, it was far and away the, the most wealthy city uh, in the province of Asia. And again, you can find that out from writings of the time, all kinds of different stories. One story is, and again, not in the Bible, but in other writings of the time, uh, a group of Jews in Jerusalem asked, uh, were in desperate need of financial help. They wrote to some Jews in Laodicea, and the Jews of Laodicea sent them financial help in the form of 22 and a half pounds of pure gold. Okay, these people, they had banks. Laodicea was known for having a number of banks. In 60 AD, just 30 years after Jesus, uh, a massive earthquake leveled Laodicea. And Rome itself, Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, offered financial assistance to Laodicea to help them rebuild. And the Laodiceans refused and rebuilt the whole city past its former uh, splendor with their own money. I have need of nothing. That was the spirit of the city. It had crept into the church. And they weren't praying. There was no hunger for Jesus. They had a form of Christianity. They had church. They had services. They had all of that. And so Jesus tells them this, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Now, how on earth? Here's a lukewarm church. Warm church. They have no desire to pray together. Corporately, they have no desire to pray, to, get, to pray individually, really. I mean, maybe a little perfunctory stuff. Any church would do that, but not to really go after Jesus. Now Jesus says, buy from me gold. How on earth? And again, he's using terminology that's relevant to Laodicea because it's a very wealthy city full of banks. 
But how do you buy from Jesus gold? First of all, what this is not is you obviously, and we know from, again, Holy Spirit common sense is read the Bible. Obviously, we know from Scripture you cannot buy anything from God. Isn't that true? You cannot buy your salvation. You cannot, you cannot earn your salvation with works. You cannot buy grace. Jesus loves you every morning. He loves you this morning. He loved you when you got up this morning. Before you did anything for him, before you didn't do anything for him, his grace is absolutely, utterly free. Okay? So what does it mean, buy? Well, I'm going to take you to just an interesting verse in Isaiah that's a great parallel. It says this in Isaiah 55, verse 1. God is inviting us by his spirit this morning here in this service. Come, everyone who thirsts. Notice you have to be thirsty. If you don't even realize you need Jesus, you're not going to come to him. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, that is so interesting. Look at the, this is the gospel paradox in an Old Testament passage. Come buy stuff, God says, and it doesn't cost you anything. Well, what in the world? What does that even mean? Come, come buy stuff for me. It's amazing. Come buy stuff for me that satisfies, and you can come buy it without price. Without money, without price. And here we actually see the gospel paradox. Here's the paradox of the gospel in the good news of Jesus. It's free, but it will cost you everything. That's the gospel paradox. It's absolutely, utterly free, but it will cost you everything. What does that mean? Well, it's free. The thief on the cross lived a violent Terrible life. That's why he was on the cross. He wasn't just some thief who shoplifted. They didn't crucify people for that. He will have been involved in some kind of violent, probably banditry in those days, which was a very violent, terrible thing. He, did. he had not done anything good with his life. Now he's on the cross. What can he do to earn his salvation in the final moments of a wicked life? And he looks at Jesus, and all he says is, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And just based on that, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's absolutely free. Ha! It's absolutely free. You can't earn Jesus' love. You can't earn Jesus' forgiveness. You can't earn eternal life or or the resurrection. It's absolutely free. And even here today, and you're a Christian, every day you go to him again, and his grace is free. And you had a bad day yesterday. You had a bad week. You had a bad month. And you go to Jesus, and you say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. Give me a fresh start. And he says, that's what I love to do. It's totally free. And yet... It'll cost you everything. Jesus said, the road is narrow, and those who find it are few. But the way to hell is wide. That's the easy way. The road of following Jesus is hard. So on the one hand, it's absolutely free. You don't earn it, and every day it's free. And you start again, and you say, I want a fresh start, and Jesus gives you a fresh start. But then following him often means making choices that are not for me. I've now become a servant. When I, that's why it costs everything, because when I... Ask Jesus into my heart. I'm not just asking him into my heart. What am I giving him? I'm giving him my life. It's free, but I'm giving him my life. I'm now his servant. I don't live for myself anymore. It's the most expensive thing you'll ever do because you no longer belong to yourself. Absolutely free. Come by. There's a sense of cost, but without money and without price. If you truly give your life to Jesus, it will cost you everything in the sense that your money no longer belongs to you. 
Your time no longer. Now, I want to just talk about this for a moment because even when I say things like that, I know some people go to a very over-spiritualized place. When I say you give your life to Jesus and now Christians get this thing, okay, my time no longer belongs to me, my money no longer belongs to me, and you get some of these people who over-spiritualize this and now they're doing listening prayer about every single thing in their life. Uh, what does God want me to do right now? What does God want me to spend this $20 on that's in my wallet? What does God want me to, does he want me to go to that movie with my friends tomorrow or not? And, and they're just, that, that's weird. Don't, don't go there. If you're going to that place, that's not, what, that's not what we mean when we talk about listening prayer. That's not what we mean. God is not chirping in your ear, and I always use, those of you who are parents, you know this. I don't talk to my kids all the time telling them every single thing to do. I do communicate with them regularly, and there are certain guidelines I, I hope I'm, I'm clear about. You know, hitting your, your sister with that uh, bat, that was not a good idea. I know I hadn't told you that specifically, but hitting with anything is about, okay, right? So we have general guidelines and principles. We step in. Sometimes, don't, you have to stop that now. Whatever, right? But when they go off and play, I'm not in there, um, mm, and they're sitting there on their bunk going, should I read this book, or does daddy want me to do origami, or does he want me to color with my pencil crayons? Don't ask me that. Go and have fun. Come and ask me things. Can I play with my friends? Yes, go and do it. Most of the things in your life, you know when you make a decision, there's a difference, and then I'll come back to what I'm... Because if we have the wrong idea here, we over-spiritualize and we make this thing weird. We should, you do not have to listen in prayer. I think we should listen about, we should always be listening. We should always be listening to that still small voice in us. But we should not be expecting directions every week on all kinds of specific things. You know how I like to look at it? I like to make my decisions prayerfully. Which means when I come to a big decision, I am, I'm praying about it. And if God wants to speak to me very clearly exactly what to do, do you know what he'll do? He will make it clear. But he won't make every single thing clear to you because he doesn't want to micromanage you. That's not how he views this relationship. So I'm praying about things, but then there's many decisions I just make out of, I've been in the Bible, I've talked to my wife, uh, what, you know, our personality, how do things fit? You know, like, uh, you know, when I, when, when I was, was at Trinity Western University and I was, you know, I had dreams of become, going into astronomy and various things. And one day I was praying. I wasn't even praying about that, but I was praying because to have a prayerful life, that's the important thing. And then one day I just felt God say out of nowhere, I just, I can still see the tree I was at. I was praying there and I just felt him say, and I just knew it. How did I know? I don't know. You, you just know when you know. He says, you're going to go back to Manitoba, you're going to go to U of M. Thank you. Thankfully, at that point, he didn't tell me I was going to become a pastor because I probably would have jonah So I came back and literally through all that. But you know, there's been other decisions. We made lots of other big decisions. Do our kids go to school? You know, we homeschool our kids for a few years, do they not? You pray about it, you pray about it, you pray about it, and you realize, you know what? We're just overwhelmed. We have too much on our plates. God didn't say you have to do this or you have to do that. We prayed about it, prayed about it, prayed about it. And then prayerfully, he wasn't saying. Sometimes he says very clearly, many times he doesn't. So now you weigh prayerfully, what are my motives? What are we trying to accomplish? And now you make a decision. You just have to make a decision with wisdom and with the spirit and with the motives correct. And then you just make a decision. And you don't have to over-spiritualize it. 
And sometimes what I see people do is when they think they got something in listening prayer, then they want to blame God if it doesn't turn out. We still have to make our decisions. Make them prayerfully, but don't expect that God is trying to guide you through life, every single thing, because really what you want is you're trying to take the doubt out of it. You want to just have certainty about everything in your life, and Jesus doesn't want you to have certainty because then you wouldn't need faith. So he will make himself clear when he wants to make a big change in your life, as long as you're prayerful. I'm not saying, do not hear me saying here that you shouldn't pray about everything. You should pray about everything. Be prayerful, be sensing, be weighing, be in the scriptures. Are your motives good? Why are you doing this or that? But in the end, you can't be paralyzed, always needing an exact word from God, do this or this. He will give that to you if you are prayerful. Anyway, my point is, I have to say that because sometimes when I say your money is not yours and your time is not yours, now I hear people and they're praying, they feel guilty all the time. That means I should be doing ministry six nights a week. You should not. You should not. You are also a human being and God did not make you a machine. And it is worship to him to live a fully human life, to love your family and to enjoy who he's made you to be. And some of the things you enjoy to do, you should do those. But the point is, you shouldn't only live for yourself. You have given your life to someone else. And now you live to serve him. And if you look at your budget, and if you look at your time, you should be able to see those things. That there's actually a sense of your need for Jesus that can be seen in that you are using your money to advance his kingdom, and you are using your time to serve his kingdom. And when you pray, you have a desire. You don't just go to work, but when you go to work, it hurts you that there's people there that don't know Jesus. And so you don't just do the easy thing and keep your head down, but you pray for them and you reach out to them because you are a servant of Jesus. That's what you are. It's free, but it will cost you everything. So Jesus says, buy from me gold. It's free, but he is actually asking you to give your life to him. And he says, then he goes on in the next verse, and white garments, he wants you to give him your, your actions. He wants to give him your service. He wants you to give him your finances. Not that you give everything away to the church, not at all. In fact, the first thing you might do in order to give your finances to Jesus might not be a single penny to the church or to missions. The first thing you might do is actually make a budget and actually know where the money is going so that you can begin to be a person who, who uses finances to advance the kingdom of God. It's not about having nothing. It's about serving. And white garments, that's righteous acts and service. That's what white garments symbolizes in the Bible, so that you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness, may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. How do you repent of lukewarmness? Let me give you four things. Repenting of lukewarmness. First of all, recognize if you're not living like a servant. Recognize if you're not living like a servant. If you're, if you're just living your whole life for yourself, the point of this is not you serve six days a week or five days a week or seven days a week. No. But when you go to work, do you see yourself as serving Jesus? Do you see your business as being belonging to Jesus? Do you see your talents as belonging to Jesus? Do you see that? 
And if you don't, that's a prayer request. Jesus, I want to serve you. These, these things belong to you. Recognize if you're not living with a sense of need. Do you, do you try to get up from day to day and cultivate? Jesus, I need you today. I actually need your work. Do you pray about, you know, how you can be an example for him at work? Do you pray? Lord, how can I bless other people? It's not just about blessing myself. How can I be a blessing to other people? How can I help other people know you better? How can I help children know you better? How can I help dads know you better? How can I help, you know, if maybe you're into sports. How can I help other hockey players know you better? Are you living with a sense of need? I need you, Jesus. Are you growing in a sense of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for you? Is all of your service that you do, is it just a duty? Is it hard? Or have you refocused on why you do it? Everything we have is because Jesus loves us. The fact that you're breathing today is because Jesus loves you. And he has forgiven you. And his grace is free every morning. And what we as Christians so often do is we forget about all that, and then we get into this, it's so hard to be a Christian. It's so hard. You know, that is the start of lukewarmness. It's so hard to serve. It's so hard this. It's so hard that. It's so hard on me. And really what's hard on us is our wrong motives and our people-pleasing and our pride. That's hard and that's heavy. And yes, we all go through ups and downs, and serving Jesus can be hard. It doesn't mean we always automatically get up out of bed with lots of energy. But when you focus on Jesus, he died on the cross for you, and you're going to live with him forever. And his grace is new every morning. Are you cultivating a sense of, I do these hard things for Jesus because he's amazing. Then you know you're moving out of lukewarmness. I'm doing hard things for Jesus because I love him. And lastly, do you have a group in your life that holds you accountable to weekly putting Jesus first instead of yourself? And that's what my prayer, you're not going to have this overnight. And you might be in a cell that doesn't really do that. You get together and you talk and that's better than nothing. And you maybe pray a little bit. But the goal is to get your cell to a place where you have a group of women or a group of guys around you that every week are helping you make hard choices to keep moving closer to Jesus. Because I'll tell you this, the easiest state is to flow back into selfishness. Is that not true? If, if, if you put no effort into your spiritual life, you will always flow back to selfishness, discouragement, bleh. So there's little choices we make. So instead of binging on media when we feel stressed, that's what many of us do. Is it not true? Binging on media or binging on food. I'm stressed, 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 stressed. I'm exhausted. I binge on media, I binge on food. Not that it's bad to watch a movie. It isn't. Not that it's bad to watch some sports. It isn't. But we binge there trying to fill a need inside of us rather than going and drinking from the Lord. So we need people who every week hold us accountable and push us to make those hard choices every day where we put Jesus first instead of ourselves. And in the end, we're going to end up a lot more joyful. Do you have a group of people around you that you're not just leading, but they're encouraging you every week and they know what you're struggling with and you can tell them anything and they're helping you get closer to Jesus? You need that on this walk. We should be praying and pushing our cell groups to go in that kind of a direction. It's not just a small group for the sake of saying we're in a small group, but we actually are pushing each other. Find a group of some kind, even if it's not called a small group. 
Find a group of people that you can trust and love and who will help you do this. And then lastly, those whom I love. Jesus says, you know I love? He says, those whom I love. Can you throw that up there? Perfect. Those whom I love. You know, the word there for love is not agape, which is usually the word used in the New Testament. And agape is a great word. I love it. It means it'll never end. It's consistent. It's firm. You can count on it. Great. I love agape. This one isn't agape. It's phileo. You know what it means? I'm fond of. Jesus says, affection. This is an affectionate word. In fact, sometimes this word is translated kiss. Okay? Jesus says, those whom I am affectionate for, I'm fond of you, those are the ones whom I discipline. If you're in the middle of being disciplined in your life right now, thank the Lord that he's so affectionate for you. Because it's only the ones he's affectionate of that he reproves and disciplines. Then he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. This is what he wants, a relationship. Stop doing things for him and start doing things with him. He wants to have this kind with you. If you're feeling overwhelmed in your life, go to Jesus and just spend some time worshiping and loving him. Just worship him and love him because he wants to come and have a meal with you. He wants to be a friend and he will carry your burdens. You bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Let's pray to this Jesus. Lord Jesus, some of us, the burden of lukewarmness is just weighing us down. Would you take off the yoke of lukewarmness, of not feeling our need for you, of not being connected to you, of not being grateful to you, of doing things out of service, out of legalism, out of have to. I pray for a spirit of gratitude, even right now while I'm praying. I pray for a spirit of lightness, where there's a spirit of heaviness. I pray that a spirit of your love and grace would flow into our hearts this morning and that you would touch us afresh. Give each one of us here friends, who will encourage and support us on the way, who will help us every week to take steps towards you instead of into lukewarmness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.